Lovely to be with you this morning. You may have seen um, a report in the paper this week about a survey that's been done across the world for the, how religious different countries are, how religious various people are in various different countries. And the reason why it reached the news was that the UK has worked out to be the sixth least religious country in the world. Did you see that? With 30% of people in the UK describing themselves as religious, compared to an international average of 63%. And in some places like uh, some places in the Far East, it's 90% describe themselves as religious. I really wasn't surprised, actually, by those findings. Um, I'll tell you why. I think I've noticed over the years that the way in which people kind of avoid the language of religion, even if actually they're open to faith. So, for example, um, I often find that people... In fact, I was looking at the survey. Only 13, 1-3% of people describe themselves as atheists in this country. But actually 53% of the people just said they weren't religious. And you kind of, what are they? I, I tend to find that actually kind of what people say is they describe themselves as not religious but being spiritual. So people say, I'm not religious but I am spiritual. So they kind of see religious as being part of organised public faith but being spiritual about something more personal, more individual, more private. And so kind of corporate faith that's declining in sort of attendance, but being spiritual, that's as popular as ever. Now, I'm not particularly here to defend the language of being religious, but I do want to say this emphasis on just being spiritual seems something of a shame, from a Christian perspective at least. And I'll tell you why. Because the vision of faith in the Bible is something so much more exciting than simply what one might do on one's own behind closed doors. The vision of faith in the Bible is something so much more transforming, so much more life-changing. Ultimately, it's so much more exciting than simply what we might do on our own with a candle or whatever form of being spiritual it takes. And I guess that issue of kind of what is faith really about, is it just about being spiritual or is it something about bigger than that? That's what we're going to be looking at as a church over the next two or three months as we work our way through the book of the Bible that calls, is called Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Because I guess I want to say that Ephesians is a book that can enlarge our vision of what faith is all about. I, I, I think it will enlarge our vision of just how glorious the gospel is, what the good news of Jesus Christ and why it's so good. I, I think letters of Ephesians can enlarge our vision of how transformed the Christian life is really called to be. And above all, I think the the letter to the Ephesians can enlarge our vision of the role that God has for his people, his body, the church, in his mission to the world. That's the the vision I think we're going to be confronted with. And what we're doing essentially this morning is kind of just dipping our toe in the water of the river in which we're going to swim. It's a somewhat extended metaphor, but anyway, you know, you know what I mean. We're just going to do the first two verses, what I'm saying, basically, this morning, of Ephesians. If you've got Bibles in front of you in chairs. It would be helpful just if you could have them open. I've read it for you, but it's helpful because with two verses, we are going to look at them in a little detail. Um, they're underneath the seats, uh, either in front or behind you. You'll see there's a little batting order, actually, in the, the news sheet that's on, on a printed piece of cream paper, And I'm suggesting that we look at this under three headings. The passage is on page 1173, 1173, Ephesians chapter 1. 
And I'm going to suggest we look at this under the three headings of the, 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 the kind of three mentions of Christ Jesus in these, three, in these two verses. We've got a man of Christ Jesus, verse 1a, the first half, a people of Christ Jesus, and a message of Christ Jesus. What we're going to do is we're going to look at who wrote the letter, <laughs> we're going to look at who he's writing it to, and then we're going to look at why he wrote it. Okay, so that sounds like a plan, doesn't it, really? So why don't we look at who wrote the letter? And if you look with me at verse 1, I put it under the title of a man of Christ Jesus. But look at what Paul says. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Okay, so who's this man, Paul? We actually know more about Paul than virtually any New Testament character. Just let me remind you the backstory. okay? Paul was born Saul of Tarsus. Uh, and uh, he was brought up as a Jew, he qualified as a Pharisee, he was an expert in the law, and as such, initially he was uh, persecuting the Christian church. All those who thought that Jesus was the Messiah, they were in his sights. And um, he was on his way to do that in Damascus, to get rid of the church there, when he had this amazing vision of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And who said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And that kind of blew his mind. He went away into the desert for a while and kind of did what might be described as a theological 180. Uh, and kind of from, turning, to persecute, from ter- turning from persecuting the church to being a major supporter of it. And he had a ministry particularly evangelizing not just to Jews, but also non-Jews, Gentiles. And he went, he undertook three missionary journeys uh, throughout the Middle East, particularly Turkey and Greece, And he actually ended up in Jerusalem and then was arrested there and sent off to Rome where he was imprisoned. Um, And it's during that time in prison that he wrote uh, some of his letters, including, we think, this one to Ephesus in about AD 62. And he was killed, uh, we think, in the mid-AD 60s under the Nero persecution uh, in Rome. Um, but the thing is to notice how Paul describes himself. He calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, that word apostolos simply means someone who's sent. And it was used in the early church to refer to people who had received a specific personal commission from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that included the disciples, but also Paul on that road to Damascus. And, 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 but he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. He, he's got the news, and the news is not about himself. It's about Christ Jesus. And notice it's not just about Jesus, but Christ Jesus. Do you know what that means? Christ is the Greek for Messiah, anointed one, the promised one of God. He's saying, I'm not just here to talk about Jesus. I'm here to talk about him as king, as Messiah, as Christ Jesus, the King Jesus. He's he's saying it's not Caesar in Rome who's king. I'm talking about King Jesus. He's gripped with the news of Jesus. He's transformed by the news of Jesus. And look how he describes himself also as an apostle by the will of God. Now, on one level, that's just kind of affirming that he's not been voted on the apostolic board. You know, he hasn't won an election. He's kind of been called to do this role. But I think it's also Paul recognising he's an apostle because God has called him to do that. He recognises that without the call of God on his life, he would have been still persecuting Christians. He wasn't an apostle because he always fancied it. He was an apostle because God called him and reached into his life. He's an apostle because God intervened. And before we just kind of stop thinking about Paul, I just want to suggest one application that we might want to take away today, and that's this. There is no one 
who is beyond the reach of God. There is no one who is beyond the reach of God. You would have thought, you see, that Saul, as he then was, was exactly that. He was beyond the reach of God. I mean, he, he was persecuting Christians. He was taking them off to be killed. You know, he was persecuting Christians in Damascus. Much like Christians in that area today are being persecuted. I, I don't know if anyone saw the BBC documentary from Jane Corbyn that was on this week, Kill the Christians. It wasn't just Christians 2,000 years ago in Syria who were being persecuted. It's Christians today in Syria who are being persecuted. But Saul, you see, God intervened in his life and revealed himself in a way that turned him from being a persecutor to being a disciple. The most unlikely convert, perhaps, in history. And yet God did that. And I guess that's a great reminder for us when we pray for Christians persecuted throughout the world, as we do. Let's pray not just for the people being persecuted in Syria or Iraq. Let's pray for the people doing the persecuting. I heard this week, as I was writing this sermon, I heard a report from friends in the Middle East that after the murder of those 21 Egyptian Coptic Christians by IS two of their murderers had contacted the Coptic archbishop in Egypt to ask for forgiveness. Now, I can't verify that. I haven't seen that verified independently. But if that's the case, that is consistent with what God in, did in Saul's life. That actually the persecutor became the disciple. And I guess it's an encouragement for us to pray, not because we know how it all works, but just to pray. And similarly, just to continue for us to pray for people we know who seem miles away from God, walking in exactly the wrong direction. Because we can pray in the hope that the God who called Saul to be Paul can call them today. Perhaps actually you were one of those people where you were walking away in exactly the wrong direction, but God called you. Or perhaps you know somebody who's very much on your heart, this is just encouragement when we read these words, an apostle by the will of God, that, that we can always pray because the power of God was at work in Saul's and Paul's life. He was a man of Christ Jesus. Someone who seemed beyond the pale, now utterly gripped by Jesus and his call. Second, we see a people of Christ Jesus. We've seen who's writing this letter. Now let's see who it's being written to. In verse uh, 1, the second half, we read, To the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Uh, can you put your hands up if you've been to Ephesus? Anyone been to Ephesus? Aren't you lucky? Isn't that lovely? Right, put your hands down, that's lovely. I, I'm, you know, if I'm wrong here, don't shout out. Uh, is that okay? Just tell me afterwards. No, what do we know about Ephesus? Well, it's, here's a map of it. Um, it's on the southwest coast of what is now Turkey. It, it, now the sea, I think, has retreated, but up to then, it was, at the time of Jesus, it was an important port, and it was a really major city in the Middle East, one of the most significant cities in the province of Asia Minor. It was a, a centre of commerce, trade, it was a centre of learning, um, and it was a centre of worship, because the, one of the most important things about Ephesus uh, was, the, um, sit, was the temple to the Greek god Artemis. 
that was an extraordinary size. And uh, it was famed. And in fact, you could buy little silver copies of this Temple of Artemis. And that's what you could do. That's what some of their trade was. This is the type of view. Let's look into the next slide. This is the type of view that Paul would have seen when he walked up from the river. Um, and all of that would have been colonnade shops. It's interesting. Ephesus, it wasn't, like, it wasn't a new city like Corinth. Corinth was basically new money at the time of Paul. But also, it wasn't just old money. Athens, at the time of Paul, had basically was past its prime. It was kind of like yesterday's city. Ephesus was like a, church, a city with a historic past and a vibrant present. Does that sound like London to you? Historic past, vibrant present. Only the temples that people worship at in London are slightly different. They're tall and pointy. With um, Anyway, um, so it's, it's basically, it was a kind of city that was going somewhere, but with a great reputation. What of the church in Ephesus? We learn actually quite a bit about the church from Acts, thanks Nick, um, from Acts chapter 18 to verse 20, where we, Paul stays there. The church started in quite a fragmented way. Paul visited it, but then moved on. He then came back and he discovered that although the church was there, they hadn't heard about the Holy Spirit. So he told them about the Holy Spirit. And then he stayed in Ephesus for just over two years. He preached for three months in the synagogue, two years in the local lecture hall, and so he knew the church really well. And in fact, he, on a future visit, he asked the Ephesian elders to come and visit him in a nearby port so he could say goodbye to them. He spent longer in Ephesus than on any other, in any other city in his missionary journeys. So it's a church that he knew well and had an affection for. And you can sense this affection in the description he gives. He calls them, if you look with me, saints in Ephesus, the faithful or the believers in Christ Jesus. Saints, by the way, doesn't mean he thinks they're perfect. Saints in Greek just means hagioi. It simply means the holy ones. And what he's trying to remind them is that you're holy, he says, because you've been forgiven by Jesus. That's the reason you're saints. You've been made saints by Jesus. And he calls them believers to remind that their faith, their identity, is in Jesus Christ. But the thing I wanted to look at is something that might otherwise pass us by. And the fact is that both these words are in the plural. He describes them as saints and believers. This is not a letter to an individual forgiven believer, but to a community of forgiven believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I guess that's important because one of the things we're going to see through the letter is just how this is a letter to a community. And it's a letter that explores the crucial role that the Apostle Paul understands the community of believers, the church, to play in the mission of God. Because virtually in every chapter of this book, Paul is going to say that everything God wants to do, he wants to do his, through his church. He'll say that it's in, a, it's in a loving, forgiving community that the good news of Jesus is lived out. It's through a caring and a praying community that people mature in faith. It's in a spirit-filled community that God dwells among his people. And I guess if, if that culture we talked about today where, you know, being spiritual is kind of quite popular, that's quite an important message for us to hear. Because it seems to me, and one of the things you do is you look at our census stats where it's still 70% of people describe themselves as Christian and only 7% of people go to church. That would suggest that a lot of people believe that it's okay to kind of have a personal faith, but being actually belonging to the body of believers is something that's very much an optional extra. Perhaps you've heard people say it to you like they've said to me, I'm, not a Christ- I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. I have to say, Paul, the Apostle Paul, would find that sort of statement 
utterly flummoxing. He just wouldn't know what to do with it. He'd say, well, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're already a member of the body of Christ. And he said, if you don't live that out by meeting with those members of the body, well, do you believe in Jesus Christ at all? I think that's what the message of Ephesians is actually all about. Paul believes, you see, that everything God wants to do, he wants to do through his body, the church. Whether that's proclaiming the gospel, going deeper in faith and holiness, whether that's experiencing God and knowing his care in difficult times, whether that's serving the poor or fighting for justice, everything God wants to do, he wants to do through his body, not through one or two heroes like himself. I was reminded of this, I was thinking, as I was writing this sermon this week, a couple of kind of stories came to mind that kind of illustrated that for me. One is, actually come from last Sunday. Last Sunday, Annabelle and I were away with the boys visiting friends in, in, in Norfolk, in Great Yarmouth, and we went to church with these friends. They, they, they were founder members of a church plant that meets in a school. And it's really good, because I wasn't, you know, I was going undercover sort of thing, didn't know I was a vicar. Um, so, um, uh, and I guess there were about 80 people there, and... Um, As a visitor, though, what I found really moving was seeing the ways in which God was at work in that church through the relationships people had with one another. There was a 17-year-old leading worship who was being mentored by a kind of older guy. And it was just lovely to see their relationship and the encouragement they gave and the way they prayed together. Uh, It was just really special. There was um, an older couple giving prayer ministry for a, a couple with young children. There was a teenager who was playing with some of the kids after the service. And kind of lots of things like that, really. And it just got, it just kind of overwhelmed me a bit about the kind of the real beauty of God's church and what he wants to do through it. And just faith is something so much more exciting than something you just do on your own. I guess the other story that came to mind, it's kind of a completely different extreme, really, but was five years ago when I went to Cape Town in South Africa for the Lausanne Congress on World evangelization and it came to mind because actually Ephesians was our letter for the conference I I read that every day with the people we we were meeting with but I've never forgotten kind of being in this enormous conference hall with 4,000 people from virtually every country in the world kind of praising God in different languages hearing stories of what God was doing in the world learning from people much wiser than myself um, and just being reminded of what God was doing through his body of which I was just a small part. And I guess the other story I had was kind of from our experience of doing life to the full as a church. I'll say a little bit more about this at the APCM a a week tomorrow. But um, I guess the thing that really, one of the things that really kind of struck me during the week was just how this body of believers, this church, served together during the week. Kind of people from all different ages and congregations just serving so sacrificially and generously together without a word of complaint as far as I could work out and just showing enormous generosity. And I want to tell you that the number of people who gave me feedback and said, we just couldn't quite believe that people were like this uh, and the, the way that that made an impact on other people. Uh, actually, to go back to the tier fund, I was really, um, I really encourage you to join me on, on Wednesday because one of the things I find so gripping about the vision for tier fund is the way it understands the role of the local church in serving the poor. I think it's unique among development agencies in recognising that God wants to work through his people, which is the church. And um, do come on Wednesday and find out more, because I find their vision really compelling. 
So I'd just like to say, even at the beginning of the outset of the letter, where Paul describes these as saints and believers, he's trying to say faith is something we live together. And I guess just at the beginning of this sermon series, it might be just worth asking that question of ourselves. How do we view the church and the role that it plays in our faith? How do we believe this community plays a part in our faith? How has God worked in it to deepen our faith or to stretch our service? Would we miss it if it wasn't there? What would our faith look like just on our own? And if you find answering those questions quite straightforward, think about how you'd answer them, not from the perspective of the 1115 congregation or Holy Trinity, but rather from the perspective of the wider church, both in this country and abroad. What role does the church play in your faith? You see, you were not made to be a believer on your own. You were made to be a saint and faithful in Christ Jesus with others. A people of Christ Jesus. Thirdly, let's look at the reason behind the letter, which is the message of Christ Jesus. And if you look with me, Paul, having sort of introduced himself and told who he's writing to, look with me, he says in verse 2, Grace and peace to you, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. Now, in one sense, that's a kind of normal way in which you wrote letters in the ancient world, but I know that Paul never kind of used words by accident. And I think kind of those words, grace and peace, actually hint at the overall shape of the letter. First of all, because grace and peace both refer to something that we've received from God. Grace, because that's God's free gift to us. Paul is going to explore just how amazing the grace of God is, his free gift towards us in Jesus Christ. And peace, because that's what we've got with God through his gift of Jesus to us. Paul says we're no longer enemies with God, we're actually friends with him, we're at peace with him. So grace and peace are something we've received from God. But secondly, Grace and peace are something that we live out in our lives. Because we don't receive the grace of God simply to kind of hoard it to ourselves. Rather, we live lives of grace, of generosity, of hospitality, of love. And we live lives of peace. It's not as if we've been reconciled with God like this and then we (laughs) live as nastily as possible with others. Paul says if we've received peace with God, we need to live lives of peace with others. We need to live it out in our relationships and our daily lives. And that actually kind of sets the framework for the whole letter, because the letter to the Ephesians is not one of Paul's letters which is mega-specific. You know, some read some of Paul's letters, and you think he's heard some news from this church that's kind of really kind of scared him. I mean, you know, if you read Corinthians or Galatians, and you kind of think, oh, crumbs, Paul's really heard something that's upset him, and he's dealing with it. Ephesians isn't like that. Rather, it's a letter that's more general, that explores two things what we've received, and what we're living out. You can think of it like this, actually. Chapters 1 to 3, where Paul, Paul's almost saying, just look at the gospel, he's saying, and looking at it like a diamond with all different facets. He's almost saying, look at, the, look at the gospel of Jesus from this perspective. Isn't that wonderful? Then look at it from that perspective. Isn't that wonderful? Look what it's done to Jew and Gentile. Isn't that wonderful? And he's almost just saying, look, just look at the beauty of the good news of Jesus as a multifaceted diamond. And then in chapters 4 to 6, he's saying, what's it mean to live like, or live life, having been given such a precious gift? What's it look like to live a life where you've been given so much? He says in chapter 4, verse 1, live a life worthy 
of the calling you've, been, you've received. And we need both of those things. We need to be reminded afresh this morning of just the beauty of the gospel, of why Jesus Christ is good news, not just because we've been forgiven, but we've been adopted, we've been reconciled, we've been loved, we've been cared for. Just, just If you're this morning feeling guilty, you're not good enough, or just cold in your faith, just look forward over the next few weeks to discovering what is beautiful about the gospel of Christ. But we also need to know what does it mean to live that out? Because it's not enough simply to look at it. We need to live it. And over the next few weeks, if you're feeling something, well, actually, I I think I'm pretty much sorted in my Christian life. I mean, other people aren't. I, I often see that. But actually, I'm fine. Then chapters four to six are going to challenge us about what living a radical Christian life really involves. And above all this, we're going to go on this journey together. Ephesians was written to a people together, and we're going to look at it to people together, not only on Sundays, but in small groups. And I want to say, if you're not in a small group, there's never been a better time to join. Because in our small groups this term, we're going to be looking at Ephesians together, and we're going to be working together, but not just to look at Ephesians, we're going to share something of our lives, we're going to pray together, we're going to just explore what it looks like to be a community of faith. So if you're not in a small group, just have a word with me or any of the team here. And we'd love to point you in the right direction. I pray that as we look at Ephesians, we will see more deeper and closer followers of Jesus. More because we long for people to respond to the beauty of the gospel for the first time. Deeper because we grasp the the life, the transformed life that Christ is calling us to. And closer, that's my prayer perhaps most of all, is that we just kind of see how God is at work amongst us, in one another, in grace, in care and love, and in wisdom from one another. And we discover just how vital the body of Christ is for what he wants to do in our lives and in his world. Let me pray. Perhaps in a moment of quiet, we just want to think of the people sitting either side of us today. Perhaps we may know their name, perhaps we don't. But in a moment of quiet, just lift them up to God and pray that as we go on this journey together through Ephesians, they are blessed and built up in the body of Christ.